Analyze Asia is brought to you by Esavel. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Without nodes, there's no blockchain. Without blockchain, there's no cryptocurrencies. Without cryptocurrencies, there's no Web3. Nodes are the key, core, fundamental architecture and infrastructure for this ecosystem we're in. Whether you're a trading persona, you need nodes to be performing so that when you do a trade, read-write transactions happen. You verify how many tokens are in your wallet. Ultimately, like every action and transaction is coming back to a node, which is infrastructure, which is being run by institutions like Blockchain. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and with the Ethereum merge happening by the time this podcast is published, we want to discuss why enterprise-grade infrastructure is important for proof of stake to work. With me today, Andrew Varangis, Vice President Sales and General Manager for Asia-Pacific, Block Damon. Andrew, welcome to the show and it's great to have a former Amazonian here who I highly respect and enjoy working with. Thanks, Bernard. Thanks for the warm welcome and enjoy that time working together and super excited to be on the podcast today. As it is your first time on the podcast and definitely we want to dive into your origin story. How do you start your career? Yeah, thanks, Bernard. So I grew up in Perth, and for those not familiar, Perth is one of the most isolated capital cities anywhere in the globe, and it's in Western Australia. Both sides of my family were either in the car business or in in the farm and vineyard business as well. Very early on, like I was just super fortunate that my dad, I pitched my dad, constructed my sales pitch, how to get a computer, how to get dad to buy a computer. And he, um, he was on board with that. And I was fortunate enough to be one of these generations that had a Commodore 64, an Amiga, and an Atari, and then onto PC. So I, I, my passion was tech and I went into tech. So I didn't take a career in driving a big truck or digging big holes, like what Perth is really good for in the mining industry. And so I, so I left and I moved to Melbourne. I ended, ended up my last job in Melbourne. I was running a data center practice actually for a Singtel subsidiary, Optus. So I, I was working for a system integrator that got acquired by Optus Business. And I was running the data center and cloud line of business in there. And that was great. I was working with a lot of high-end enterprise customers delivering a lot of telco and IT kind of managed services around data centers and really enjoyed enjoyed that role and the opportunity it presented. Then I realized I was getting a bit bored and I was looking at Singapore and Asia going, I just think there's more excitement, more things happening, more people, better demographics, better macros. So I decided I wanted to be in Singapore. 
And I was actually talking inside Singtel about a move. And then I was pretty close to some of the folks at Cisco. And so they came around one day and said, hey, we got a job. Like, we'll put you in Singapore. It's kind of what you'd be working on. Uh, Go to market for left of center product builds internally that were a bit nervous about the general Cisco population touching and or acquisitions and scaling them out in APAC. So I, I took that role and I was really excited. And then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I want to do more angel deals in Asia. Like that's, I'm moving for the career, but I'm also moving because my hobby is and passion is aligned as well. And then uh, fast forward, you know, I did six years in Cisco with you, five and a half years at AWS, focused on startup, digital native, crypto native, venture capital. And then this January, I decided I wanted to go full-time Web3. So I was looking for something that fits me right? And I do my best in the best of breed category leader. I do my best in infrastructure. And then I saw Block Demon. It was actually a referral from one of my crypto friends who knew the advisor to the CEO. And at the same time, a recruiter had pinged me and said, hey, I know you really well. This would be good for you. And Block Demon It gives me that bit of what I know, tech, infrastructure, scaling, and gives me a good dash of what I want to learn. Crypto, staking, blockchain access. That's how I got here. Mm, Interesting backstory because it kind of fits all your background. Infrastructure, you work with startups and web trees at the beginning, crypto companies, and then obviously your understanding of the ecosystem in Asia Pacific. Now, since we are talking about angel investing, given that you have been a prolific angel investor and also involved in the XA network, which we are both part of. I think one question I want to ask, what are the key traits that you index for in founders before you invest in them? So I think at the early stage, it's quite simple. We can sit here and pontificate over a bunch of data points, but at the early stage, a lot of those that data set doesn't exist. So really for me, when you boil it down and I'm a simple guy, so I try to get things into simple analogies. But for me, it's all about the founders. So normally, like when I'm talking to founders, I usually will try push them out of their sales motion because they'll come to the call wanting to run their pitch deck. So I generally try to diffuse that and go, I've read your deck. I just want to ask you questions. And I really start with the founders. Like, who are they? What's their background? Why do I think they could or maybe won't be successful? How long have they known their co-founders? What's that cohesion like between the co-founders? That's really important for me. I've had a couple of failures due to co-founders not working well together and or blowing up disagreements. So I usually always start with the founder. And then, then I move to market. You know, what's the market? And then and that's something you can use a bit more factual data points to assess, and then timing. And then what I've learned on timing is it's largely luck. And I also think I'm usually a little bit early. When I think a market's going to go, generally, I'm usually a little bit early, which is not bad. It's better than being too late. But sometimes you kind of overestimate a market's ability to move. But That'd be the three things I look at. I think the timing part is very fair because I think Mark Andreessen from Edison Horowitz once mentioned that there are no good or bad ideas, only whether you get the timing correct. So 
yeah, I mean, web van is like a bad idea in 1990s, but it's a great idea in 2010, right? Yeah. I, I'm cu curious, and I think we have done a couple of deals together as angel investor. Which areas of interest in Web3 are you investing in now? I look, from a personal perspective, I, I, I like to play, play to my strengths, which B2B, infrastructure, pick and shovel, like things that I think are really needed. Those are the projects I, I have more confidence in because I have deeper an ability to understand more deeply. I'm not a super cyclical guy. Like I'll pass on a lot of things that like I don't understand or my head or my gut tells me I'm not really going to spend my weekends to learn. I'll pass. Even though some of those projects could do huge multiples. So I, for me, it's what I know and or what I really know I want to learn. And I usually look for the more practical kind of projects as well. Yeah. Mm. I think one interesting thing that always came up for crypto projects, Web3 projects, whichever you think is always the mental model about thinking of about valuations. What was your mental model in terms of thinking about valuations? The question I, I, I keep getting and I keep having this debate with everyone is, do you prefer tokens, equity, or a mixture of both? Yeah, and I flip it around. Like, So I prefer what I think is the right construct for the project. So I'm really agnostic here, but so, and what I mean is, uh, for example, I, I invested in an NFT infrastructure project recently, and it was equity with token warrant. And I sat down with the founder and I helped them write the warrant. And I felt the, the deal structure aligned with the company and the founders, so I did the deal. So for me, it's not really a, around, I, look, I'm fine, pure equity, pure token, something in the middle. I really want to make sure it's aligned at the start because if this is wrong, like it could kill the whole project. So for me, it's around, do I think they've structured a successful round? That's what I look for, not what is the details. It's it, do I think it's the right round to move the project forward? Hmm. So this is probably the most interesting question and I'm very curious to hear your take on it. In your career journey, what are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience? I think I only have one, really, and this is how I've always operated. And you know me as well. I'm happy to tell you if I know something, and I'm the first guy to tell you I've got no idea like, if I don't. So for me, I've spent a lot of time just understanding myself. Who am I? What makes me happy? What, what would I go study on a weekend? What won't I study on the weekend? Like, what's my motivation? right? What am I good at? What am I bad at? Like, I think that's the advice I give a lot of founders and a lot of people I meet. Like the right career path is the one that fits with the person. This is all an individual journey. There's no right or wrong here. Personally, for me, I've always optimized the role for where I think I will like it because I know myself. If I like a job, I do an excellent job. If I don't really like the job, I'm not very good. Like I've passed on career opportunities that were fantastic packages and look good on paper because I didn't think I was really excited or motivated to do the job to a level I'd be happy with. So I, I think it's a, a journey of self-understanding. I think that's the most important piece and then building things up from there. Great advice. So comes to the main subject of the day. I am interested to talk about Block Damon's presence currently in Asia Pacific and also talk a little bit about some of the things that are happening in the Web3 space. I think to start, 
the conversation before we dive deep into Block Daemon and its footprint in the region, let's establish a baseline. First of all, can you explain what proof of stake and liquid staking means in the context of Web3 and crypto? Yeah, let me have a go at it. And let's keep in mind that I'm not the most technical guy, but I'll tell you how I understand it. Okay. So proof of stake is a consensus model. What's happening here is you have validators on a network. The validators are doing the work of validating the individual transactions. So my mental model is they're like the security guard, the police officers of the network, they're securing the network, they're double checking everything. And so that's a really important function. And then how the validators promoted to be active and and doing the validation is via the community voting. And how the community votes is if a token holder has the certain token, they delegate to their preferred validator and they're effectively saying, I trust this validator to go validate the network with my percentage of tokens, so I'm voting for this validator. So that's proof of stake is you're putting your assets at stake to a validator that goes off, validates, and then therefore secures a proof of stake network. So this type of consensus mechanism is getting really popular. As you're aware, traditionally, Bitcoin and Ethereum were proof of work. That model is very energy intensive and you're talking about mining and using custom hardware where proof of stake allows for higher levels of decentralization, many validators and everybody in the community who holds the tokens to vote who do they want to validate the network. And then moving from proof of stake consensus, how do blockchains provide staking through the deployment of nodes? Yeah, so each blockchain is different. And a block daemon, like we're currently supporting over 63 protocols. So I'm enjoying the learning because they're all different, slightly different, wildly different. But, you know, quite simply, a blockchain will have what's usually called a full node. And that's a node day to day. It's got an API. It's processing transactions. Community members building projects can connect to it and access the network. So a project will usually have an archive node, and that's like the history node, the historical data node. And those nodes are usually quite big and complex to manage. And then they'll usually have their validator node, which we discussed is validating the transactions. They're usually like the core node set. And the block daemon, we, we support uh, blockchain access. We deliver a lot of full nodes to the market, a lot of archive nodes, and we run validator nodes. But then post that, it starts to get really interesting. There's many protocols that have other other node types as well, or different API connectors to perform different functions as well. So it's quite common that a protocol may have anywhere from, say, three to six or seven different node types by protocol as well. And And usually that's done by design, by the engineering team and at the actual protocol foundation as well to best serve whatever type of requirements and whatever they're designing their blockchain for. Mm. And how important are nodes as part of a key infrastructure behind the blockchain protocols? I think one thing you have done very well is painstakingly actually tease out that different protocols have different needs and these nodes are actually operating with different functions depending on the protocol design itself. Well, look, quite simply put, without nodes, there's no blockchain. 
Without blockchain, there's no cryptocurrencies. Without cryptocurrencies, there's no Web3. So nodes are the key core fundamental architecture and infrastructure for this ecosystem we're in. Whether you're a trading persona, it's really just around like the tokens. You need nodes to be performing so that when you do a trade, read-write transactions happen. You verify how many tokens are in your wallet. And we run nodes for dozens and dozens of wallet companies. Whether you're a gaming person and you're running on a specific blockchain that's designed for gaming and you want to take your in-game item and make it an NFT and take it outside the game and take it into a marketplace or even swap it, that's going to all happen on the blockchain, which is all then happening on nodes. Or if you're in this broader Web3 ecosystem. Ultimately, like every every action and transaction is coming back to a node, which is infrastructure, which is being run by institutions like Blockdaemon. I would think of it this way, right? It's like Web2 applications run on AWS Cloud or any other equivalent platform as a form of it, same as for Web3 applications now, running on nodes are pretty essential, which basically that's how I want to set it up to actually help us to understand, can you provide an overview of Block Daemon and what is its vision and mission as a company? So at Block Daemon, our mission is to connect institutions to blockchain with one API integration. For example, we've got one API called the Universal API. And at the moment, it's across about 18 different blockchains and we're rapidly adding more chains underneath it. But it's a way that we standardize common programming syntax. So query a block, get a transaction, estimate gas fee. We standardize all that command syntax right now across 18 different blockchains. So the developer needs one API and only needs to know how to do things one way to enter a multi-chain world. That specific API is very popular with our Web2 customers. And we've got a lot of large fintech customers using that. You can imagine like there's some of the wallet kind of fintech people, because if you don't do that and they want to put, let's say, 18 tokens into a wallet, they've got 18 APIs and effectively 18 different ways or 18 variations on how to get those tokens in a wallet. And that's just one example. If I zoom out, what what Blockdaemon does is we provide access to blockchain, whether that's a full node dedicated to you, whether that's a node in some highly available clustered system, but that's multi-tenant. So we provide node infrastructure in a variety of methods, whatever is the right thing for the customer. And the customer can choose different pieces. It is sort of node Lego blocks. We're the largest institutional staking provider. So we're providing the ability for institutions to delegate to our validators. And at the moment, we've got well over 30 different POS tokens we offer staking services for. And we have some of the largest customers in the ecosystem delegating to us as well. And then we've got a bunch of APIs. I I discussed the universal API. We've got an NFT API. If you wanted to check, for example, who are all the wallets that's owned a specific API on the Ethereum blockchain since it's been minted, we have an API where you can check that. We've got a key management SDK for very complex key management capabilities. So you can think about us as providing that infrastructure end-to-end for people to build Web3 projects on. 
It doesn't matter if they're in GameFi, they're an exchange, they're a DeFi protocol, they're building some institutional yield product for people uh, to, you know, earn off. We're, we're really underpinning, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different institutions building a variety of different things in the broader crypto and Web3 ecosystem. So what are the key highlights of Block Daemon so far? And what can you share some of the, like, the milestones of the company to now? Yeah, so I think I think a couple of things. Look, there's many milestones. Let me just let me tease out a couple. I think, you know, starting with our investor base, we're super excited. We've got a fantastic cap table. We've announced Citibank, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, like on, on the cap table, and we are working with projects with them. We've got people like SoftBank and Tiger and Lira Hippow. Um, and we've got some of the pioneering crypto funds on our cap table. Our friends at uh, Hashkey and Fembushi and Dragonfly. You know, our CEO has been really deliberate in how he's been raising capital, bringing in the expertise of, of these very tenured, well-known crypto VCs bringing in some of the largest financial institutions on the planet and also bringing in the leading Web2 VC and super late stage growth capital like SoftBank. So we've been building solutions with all of these three customer sets in mind. And I think that's really what one of the, one of the things that sets us apart. Our engineers build node solutions and we're thinking, what, what does a crypto native institution need? What does the bank need from a node solution? What does the web two developer need? What's the crypto native developer need? So we're really thinking about building from those perspectives. And we're fortunate enough to have a fantastic set of investors that are largely customers as well, that give us that very honest feedback. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing we're really proud about is just being the largest institutional grade delegator and validator in the market. Late last year, we were at 10 billion delegated to our validators as well. So we've got a lot of people that trust us to, to secure blockchain networks on their behalf as well. I think what else sets us apart is, is our engineering team. You know, we're, we're about two thirds engineers. So we're a very engineering centric company. Back to what I said, I do my best work in the category leader, best of breed engineering companies, and Block Demon is that. Super excited about the depth of our engineering talent. You know, I can have a meeting with a potential customer, then I bring a couple of that engineers and they're like, okay, we're good to go. Let's work together. I like that sales motion. That's kind of in my DNA and, and what I prefer. And then I'd say uh, lastly, but probably most importantly is our customer base. We're at hundreds and hundreds of institutional customers. We support the largest exchanges, the largest crypto funds, the largest DeFi protocols, the largest CFI guys. We're very deep relationship with the L1s, the L2s, the Oracles, engineering to engineering foundation discussions always going on and we're supporting communities and projects and ecosystems. So I think when you add it all up, there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces as well in Block Demon that make it just a place I was super excited to join. Mm. Curious to ask this. So what is your role and coverage for Block Demon with specific to Asia Pacific then? I'm in a VP and GM role. So I'm looking after everything that's in that the Asia Pacific 
kind of geographical remit. So China over to India, down to Australia, including Japan and Korea, Southeast Asia, everything in between. So I think about our customers, I think about our P&L, I think about how do we deliver the best support? What sort of engineering function do we need out here? Marketing, I think about all of these facets of our business when it comes to APAC. Mm. So very much everything is go tr- going through like a go-to-market beginning, building up the infrastructure for block daemon in the region itself. I'm quite curious, I think you already alluded to earlier, whether you are an exchange, could even could be fintech, banks, traditional, C5 or even game companies as your customers. How do they leverage the institutional grade kind of blockchain infrastructure so that they allow their own blockchains to stake, scale and deploy their nodes? Are there any like additional functions that you all help them with as well? I think we, we do see some patterns. So let me give you one example. If you were, say, an exchange, and this could be any exchange globally, big or small, but generally what happens with conversations with an exchange to generalize, they'll say, hey, hey, help me out with my transaction infrastructure. My wallet has got so many users, like it's timing out. I'm, I'm, I'm getting help desk calls logged about what's, you know, my users are querying their current balances. So we'll supply node infrastructure around their wallet really to strengthen it and make it more reliable. And sometimes it's a combination of their nodes and our nodes. Sometimes we're doing all of it. Really depends on the specifics with the exchange. We then help them make sure that their users are getting all the right data in their wallet via the node infrastructure. Usually the conversation turns to the treasury department and we have a conversation with treasury about generating rewards from native token staking. And we we build out high touch, high support kind of mechanism that we've been running with the engineering team on the wallet side. We then encompass the internal treasury team and the treasury is busy looking after the exchange's assets, but also responsible for earning a yield. So they'll do some lending, some borrowing lending, they'll do some DeFi, they'll do whatever they need to do that's their remit. But part of that will be the safest yield and earnings via staking. So we'll kind of work with the treasury team. And then then usually the conversation will move to the product team. And they'll be like, hey, how do, how do we offer this to our customer base? And by that time, we've kind of really ingrained a support and an operational runbook capability with the exchange across node infrastructure and staking for internal use cases, we extend that usually via APIs and we allow them to kind of plug in and we give them a B2B to C and user use case as well. So that's that's generally a customer journey. Like it, it, it usually ends up looking like that over time uh, with, with an exchange. And then I think on different types of institutions, we have different generalized journeys. I think if, for example, if we if we take GameFi, we've announced we're partnering with a very reputable gaming company in Korea called WeMade, and they're 20 years in gaming. Very strong. They know what a hit game is. They've had multiple hit games, and they're convinced the future of gaming includes blockchain, includes portability and ownership of in-game items. 
if you read our press release with, with WeMade, we're helping them bring the blockchain to their already successful and established gaming business. So moving forward, they've committed that they're going to have WeMix, which is their blockchain, integrated to all their games. And any in-game item can be transferred out of the game, sold in their marketplace or traded on other marketplaces. And they're looking for forward compatibility with their in-game items as they build subsequent games. So in this example, we're bringing the blockchain credibility to, like I said, a very successful gaming company. We're helping them with, look, what does a highly scalable decentralized blockchain look like from a global perspective? What are the SLAs, throughput requirements that they'll need? Because they've got tens of millions of people on their games already. So we need a very high-end solution on the blockchain to support that. How do they build their governance council? How do they build their node operator council? So we're having all of these discussions. We're supplying node infrastructure. We're supplying the validators to them as well, but we're also helping them think about the Web3 and the blockchain ecosystem, who they should invite and have participate in these councils and communities as well. Because a successful blockchain is going to have a community approach. You know, it's going to have a variety of players running validators, a, a variety of institutions running nodes. They're going to be geographically located, different providers for decentralization, et cetera. So that's two examples. One's an exchange and, and another one's a very well-established gaming company. Yeah. Mm. Quite curious though. I, I know you already said there are 69 blockchain networks that you're currently supporting. Tell me who are they? I know, I know 63, sorry. <laughs> tell me, tell me. I know Solana is one of them. Which other ones as well? Yeah, so at Blockdaemon, like we believe in a multi-chain world. Um, we get excited about different blockchains for different use cases. And we think there's a place for a large variety of blockchain. We, we don't really favor any specific blockchain, but we try to look at a ecosystem and work out how can we genuinely be additive to an ecosystem? So for example, if we're looking at a project, it could be myself and our head of protocol research, Mary, we'll, we'll kind of look at where they're strong and, and where they need to build and we'll make recommendations. Hey, we could come and join your ecosystem and we could do these couple of things that you haven't done yet. And that scenario is always different. It's always different. For, and then, so we support these projects in a variety of different ways. Yes, a lot of it ends up in us running a validator, but sometimes, like I'll give you a couple of examples. We're working with a project very strong in APAC. We're, we're doing some joint developer events in the US just to help build their brand and community in the US. We're working with another very large L1 that needs augmentation support on their archive node infrastructure. So we're going to go run some archive nodes for them as well. So we really try to just work out how we can be helpful and how we can be a value-add participant in a specific L1, L2 ecosystem. Yeah. Mm. I think you talk about, just I think across most of your examples, uh, you really talk about the public validators, the white label validators, custodians, or even liquid staking. Are there any additional things that I have missed out from Block Daemon in terms of products-wise and what things that customers can tap on as well? Yes, I think two things worth mentioning quickly. We're building out a very large multi-tenant node-clustered system that we call Ubiquity. And Ubiquity is an umbrella term for our, all of our APIs. 
And so historically, we sold a lot of dedicated single tenant full node infrastructure to foundations and large projects. Now we're offering the choice of, okay, do you want dedicated node infrastructure or do you want highly available, highly performant, but multi-tenant clustered access systems? And we give projects the choice of both. Some projects mix and match, and some projects find it's easier to start on a ubiquity solution as well. And at the moment, that supports about 18, 19 different blockchains, and we're rapidly adding more and more chains every quarter to that solution. And I think that's a great solution for newer projects that are not sure on their volume and how many API calls they need to do and which chains they're going to interrupt with. So I think that's a great solution for that. You can go to our website. There's a free trial and developers can test it out. I think we skimmed over liquid staking. Wouldn't mind quickly coming back. We've developed the first institutional grade liquid staking product for institutions. So what I mean by that is it's a permissioned product. There's a bit of actually a bit of paperwork to do before we allow you access to the protocol. And we're partnering with a fantastic partner called Stakewise, who already have a liquid ETH staking product and protocol. And we brought some of that institutional kind of infrastructure, wrapped it around and forked their protocol. So that product's called Harbor, and we're rapidly onboarding institutions into that ecosystem as well. And we can answer a lot of compliance-based questions because we're doing the KYC, KYB on entry. So that allows institutions to participate in DeFi and staking and liquid staking, where previously a lot of institutions were telling us, hey, look, they like the look of Lido and Rocket Pool, and these are great protocols, but there's some barriers that just don't allow them to participate in those ecosystems. So we chose to build and partner and build a solution on that front as well. I think a lot of people don't appreciate the fact that it's actually impossible for an institution to have one DeFi wallet and try to go into like 20 different protocols and start doing you. And I think yeah. this is a very important piece of information that people don't get. I, I'm curious because you talk about ubiquity. So in terms of customers, you have different sizes. In how Startups and developers, how do they typically work with you? Is there like people who they talk to or they can just turn on the API, like just get started and start building? Yeah, good question. So there's multiple ways to engage us, ranging from just go to our website, create a login, enjoy the free tier for free and play around and have fun. And I always encourage people to start there. On our website, we have a node and ubiquity marketplace, again, where you can consume our node infrastructure in a self-service model. And that's in a credit card kind of pay by the month type model. Again, you, you don't need to interact with any humans if you don't want to. And then we have the institutional model. And the best analogy there, it's a proper B2B enterprise SaaS type analogy, but you know, in a crypto blockchain kind of construct. And we've got sales executives and we've got technical account managers and there's some paperwork. And but we can really deliver a very high-end SLA. We've got the ability to offer insurance. So we were the first provider to be insured against slashing and double signing. And we offer that in the enterprise engagement with our customers That because many institutions need to work with a provider that has insurance. So otherwise, it's very difficult for them to proceed. 
So we've got everything from self-service, the best place to start, to a marketplace, to everything that, you know, a traditional, the largest crypto native company or the largest financial services company would need including high-end support, SLA, insurance. It will be some paperwork to kind of end back and forth on, on the enterprise side as well. Yeah. Mm. So case studies, I'm quite interested because you talk about the what happened when Solana had an outage and Block Damon was able to provide the notes and making sure everything still run up. Are there any other interesting case study stories that you want to share? Uh, well, I, th- I think that's a good example that we discussed previously. It's in the public domain and, and Anatoly kind of gave us a shout out for our engineering support kind of in that issue. I think on you'll see on our website, we've got customers like B2C2, so an exchange and a very large institution in Europe is a public case study. We've got people like BTC Markets uh, and Caroline Bauer from Australia and us supporting like their company as public case studies as well. We've got a raft of new case studies coming as well. We've had a very large set of institutions working with us that are a little bit case study shy for competitive advantage reasons as well recently. But yeah, there's several case studies on our website and there's definitely more coming down the pipeline as well. Mm. By the time when this podcast is released, I'm pretty sure the if 2 merge will probably have completed and happened. I think one thing I want to ask you is what are your thoughts on this mega event and how will the industry move forward from here? It's just such an important, arguably one of the most important events in in blockchain history. Let me give you two answers, how I think about it personally, and I'll give you a block theme and how we're organizing ourselves around it as well. And I think personally, moving to proof of stake opens up Ethereum to a whole nother set of institutions. There is, there is a large set of institutions that have the ESG requirements that haven't really been able to fully participate with Ethereum because of like their ESG mandates. So I, I think the merge is going to open Ethereum up to an even larger audience on the institutional side. On the developer side, though, it's going to get much wider as well. Developers like more decentralization in securing the network. So moving to POS staking, I think they see the opportunity with a larger institutional set. So I, I think in one architectural move, we're going to open up two large markets on both sides of, of the equation. On the developer side, they'll be bringing more developers in. So things will go faster because developers are the lifeblood for blockchain and crypto. And then the institutions coming in, which brings more capital like into the market. So that's a perfect flywheel. More developers, more capital is going to mean more things built. So I that like that's how I internalize like the merge. On the block team inside, we're one of the largest institutional ETH2 validators out there. We run a ton, thousands and thousands of ETH2 kind of nodes. And so we've been very busy getting organized for the merge. Our engineers have been talking constantly with the Ethereum Foundation. Our head of Ethereum is a gentleman named Freddie. Like he's just neck deep. All he does is Ethereum. Him and his team, they only focus on Ethereum. And so they've been very busy preparing, testing. We're really excited about things like MEV Boost and what we'll be able to do for developers post the merge and how we'll be able to support institutions post the merge as well. So it's, it's got to be very exciting and that and definitely 
on there. But I still have one final question. What does great look like for you, Block Damon, in Asia Pacific in the next few years? So look, I'm a simple guy. I want to make sure every single founder, project, crypto native, digital native, and financial institution exploring blockchain has the opportunity to try and use our services. We spoke about like our free tier and make sure that we're able to help projects get to where they want to be, build what they want to build with reliable infrastructure and help institutions with delegations as well. So we want to be able to service and support the market. We're very busy building a very local team. We're currently in Singapore, India, Australia. We're going to deploy additional resource into another country in APAC shortly. So we're really here to support projects, protocols, foundations, exchanges, institutions working, you know, in the staking and also financial services institutions as well. So looking to help customers build out their businesses and in turn build a large capability and business here for Block Team and APAC. That's what the next few years looks like for us out here. Andrew, many thanks for schooling me on institutional great infrastructure for Web3 applications. Something that I think even not just myself, but a lot of people out there don't really realize the value of what a node infrastructure and what does it really mean for the rest of the next wave of Web3 applications. But in closing, I've just had two more questions and it's pretty fast. First one is, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Oh, I, I'm a builder. I love Lego. I love all things building. So at the moment, I, I take inspiration always just from the founders that I interact with, watching them build companies. I then go on in turn and focus on building APAC for Block Demon and I take inspiration from founders. And then quite tactically, like at the moment, candidly, I'm watching a couple of documentaries about, I think it's a metal workshop kind of documentary and people building with metal and and with welding kind of on Netflix. And I, I just like all things building. So like that's where I take inspiration, but also importantly, energy from as well. And definitely the builder culture that sticks with you wherever you go. Last okay. question, how can my audience find you? Good question. So you can hit me up on Twitter, Telegram. Uh, it's just first letter, my first name. So A and my surname, Vranges. So A Vranges, uh, it's the same username on Twitter and Telegram. I'm also a little bit old school. I, I, I work with institutions, so I am on LinkedIn. I'm the only Andrew Vranges on LinkedIn, so I'm very easy to find. And I try to be reasonably responsive. So just drop me a note and we can have a chat. You can definitely find us on any podcast platform. Tweet to us, give us your feedback and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We have also started doing advertising. I think you can hear in the first one minute of the show. But anyway, you can just drop me a call and find out how you can get your you on the advertising. So Andrew, many thanks for coming on the show and I'm definitely going to have another chat with you sometime in the future. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Bernard.